This is Healing Justice, a podcast bridging conversation at the intersections of collective healing and social change. I'm your host, Kate Warning, and this week we are coming together for part three of a three-part collaboration with Mystic Soul Project. If you're a regular listener, you probably recognize the name of Teresa Pimateus, who was a big uh, instrumental part and support of the launch of this podcast, and is also one of the three co-founders of Mystic Soul. You can read more about Teresa's bio at mysticsoulproject.com. And here in Teresa's words is what Mystic Soul is all about. The Mystic Soul Project began about two years ago uh, as a nonprofit organization. It was a vision long before that, but its intentionality is to center people of color, voices, teachings, wisdom, community conversations at the intersection of spirituality, specifically contemplative spirituality, activism and healing. Yes. So you can download and look for the first episode from this series with Mystic Soul by finding episode 26 to hear about people of color-centered spirituality. And you can hear the second episode by looking for episode number 29 on indigenous reclamation. And so here's what we're up to today for part three. We're talking contemplative activism and well, going a little bit deeper on what is contemplation, as well as how it relates to direct action and organizing. And both of the guests that are joining Teresa today are people who I totally respect and adore. The first one is Cicia Lee, and Cicia is an organizer, trainer, and contemplative practitioner that's based in Boston. She currently works with Momentum, which is a training institute and movement incubator supporting organizers across the country to build social movements that can shift the terrain of what's politically possible. Cicia is a three-wing four on the Enneagram, if you're into that kind of thing, and is also a Taurus. Alexis Francisco is also joining us, and Alexis is an organizer, educator, and currently serves as assistant pastor at New Day United Methodist Church in the Bronx, New York. Alexis's work focuses on centering spirituality and healing praxis in the work of community building and shifting dynamics of power and oppression in the Bronx, New York City, and beyond. Fun fact about Alexis is that Over the new year, uh, Alexis used one of the practices from the podcast, the spell casting practice for 2018, uh, led by Adrienne Marie Brown at their Liberation Bible Study up at New Day Church. Uh, So if y'all thought that this was like a traditional church situation, you're about to really dive in with Alexis and Cecilia and find out something otherwise. So that is definitely enough intro from me. Super excited to listen in with y'all to Teresa, Alexis, and Cecilia. Take it away, Teresa. All right. Welcome, Alexis and Cecilia. I'm so excited to have this conversation with both of you today on contemplative activism and healing. Uh, for me, it was exciting discovering both of your work and the across these intersections and as we're going to discuss further as we go into these ideas in the episode this way that people are embodying and engaging this thing called contemplative activism and what it looks like uh it's exciting for me to find people who are having experiential examples of this in their work in their lives because I do think it's something that's in its own process of becoming so for us to be able to talk about what these things mean what these dimensions mean in our own lives and work I think is really valuable in terms of putting these ideas into real world experiences and real world examples but I think before we get into the fullness of contemplative activism and healing where I'd like to begin is to just discuss the word contemplation, because for some people that term may be new, for other people it may mean a variety of things. So I would just love to hear from both of you, what does contemplation mean and how would you describe it for yourself and in general? I'm really happy to be here with you guys as well. Um, Contemplation, Um, to me and, you know, I've come into sort of clarity around my definition of this term um, through 
different engaging sort of different mystic writers and different practices and different communities. But for me, the sort of essence of contemplation is sort of whatever practices help us to pierce the veil of illusion in our lives towards what's really real beneath the surface of what we see in the day-to-day experience. So um, anything that sort of helps us to encounter or, or be in recognition of the presence of the sacred around us, which is so important in a world that has sort of done a lot to strip sacredness from our day-to-day experience and make it into something that we only experience in particular venues, particular moments, particular times. But actually um, engaging in practices of contemplation is almost like a return, it's almost like a reinfusing of the day-to-day and, the, and every moment with um, the magic and the, the, the sacredness that's inherent to it. Um, so yeah, any, any practice or gesture that invites us into recognition of that, but also into a yielding or a surrender to a power greater than ourselves um, that's inherent to the moment or to whatever action we're, we're engaged in at the time. Yeah, for me, uh, contemplative practices really help me to uh, get clearer and clearer about uh, who I am, what I really have to offer, what my most authentic self is, and to help me practice clearing out um, all of the emotional and spiritual debris uh, that piles up and gets in the way of really being able to tell what that is. Um, and so for uh, in my life, contemplative practices are uh, kind of regular grounding things that remind me of the sacredness within me and the sacredness in life in every moment. Um, it really helps me get in touch with that. Thank you both for giving such a sort of abundant way of looking at contemplation. I really appreciate that sort of between both of your descriptions, you're talking about tangible things, right? So practices, which we'll go into a little bit deeper, what those might look like, but then also just a way of being, you know, uh, this connection, like you said, Alexis, to the sacredness that is sort of ever present, but we don't see, that's not visibilized for us all the time. And so contemplation is this act of being in the world uh, that can be enlivened through certain practices and ways of, of creating space for that. But that really also, it's about this idea of just being really present to uh, sacredness in every moment. And I think for me, that also goes deeply back to original mystics of all traditions. When you read many of the texts that are written, it's not just when they're sitting and doing a particular thing, but it's it's this aliveness. It's this awakened way of being to the world and to sacredness around them, to the divine as they describe it in their own different lineages that is beyond one sort of thing that I do in my life, right? Which also I think sometimes contemplation over time and sort of this westernization of it in many ways, particularly in the Christian tradition, has um, has become narrowed sometimes to the pra- to a particular practice, right? Or a particular set of practices, uh, not just as guideposts, but as where it all happens. And I think this sort of lens of being able to to see the sacredness in everything and that that inherently is contemplation, that it is inherently mysticism, but it actually is also the engagement of contemplation, that awakeness and that aliveness that those original mystics always spoke of. So I really appreciate how you sort of connect those pieces together. And I'd love to hear for both of you because um, particularly for people of color, it's, and with particularly in the Christian tradition, which many of us come out of in terms of the 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 contemplative practices, the Western contemplative practices that we might speak about. Um, It's more rare for people of color to connect with what is called contemplation contemporarily. So I'd love to hear your engagement between maybe Western contemplation or beyond that. What was your initial engagement with, with what you're defining, the sacredness in the world, this presence to the divine, what showed up for you in your own lives? Hmm. For me, my journey towards this was really about, um, it it really revolved around my experience of loneliness. Uh, So I grew up, uh, you know, I'm an only child uh, to immigrant parents. And basically, as early as I have emotional memories, I remember being queer. And uh, for a lot of my early childhood life, that defined a lot of who I was. Uh, Just like the 
sheer kind of fear of uh, my parents, you know, learning about my queerness or my friends learning about my queerness. Uh, And especially, you know, a few kind of poignant moments in my earlier life feeling like uh, the existential crisis and the like wanting to disappear kind of like uh, being the manifestations of that loneliness. And throughout my life, I think I really learned to manage that well. You know, I had great strategies for kind of building structures of support around me to kind of navigate that experience, Uh, you know, building robust social lives, you know, throwing elaborate birthday parties, joining all these clubs in high school. Um, And especially, you know, I remember especially when I moved to the United States in the middle of high school, for the first three weeks, uh, nobody talked to me because uh, I think people in my high school were uh, confused about, you know, my gender non-binary expression. And uh, I remember having a moment of like making a commitment to myself that I was going to like, I was going to make it through, you know, Uh, I was going to survive that period of time. And that was a moment of like really consolidating all those survival strategies. Uh, And I, I made it through, you know, I, I did, I think I feel proud of how well I uh, got through that time. But uh, the moment of kind of turning to contemplation for me was uh, this moment when I was in my 20s. And uh, I was in something had thrown me into another kind of depressive episode. And uh, I remember lying on my back on the floor one day, just feeling again, the crisis of loneliness and the crisis of isolation um, that I'd been trying to avoid for so long. And uh, it, it was a moment of realizing that like a lot of the strategies I had used to survive weren't serving me, you know, like a lot of things still felt empty. And I remember reading this book that was talking about the movement from loneliness to solitude. And I remember picking this up and feeling like uh, totally moved by what they were talking about that, uh, you know, this author was naming how so much of what we do in, um, you know, a lot of the things that we say are just kind of absorbed from other people, you know, the way that we uh, sometimes build relationships and cling to them are an attempt to escape this sense of, um, the sense, the sense of fear, um, and that it was an invitation, I think, also into something deeper. That uh, connection and creativity and expression and living could be fuller, uh, coming from a place not running from the sense of loneliness, but looking deeply into it to really move more fully into it. Not seeing that kind of craving for. Uh, connection as something that needed to be imminently filled with distraction or yeah not seeing that it needed to be like imminently filled but that it was a yearning uh for my spirit to be known and to come into contact with the most painful parts of myself and to learn about the contours of my heart there and i think that was you know that moment of turning uh, from my loneliness and walking into it rather than uh, trying to avoid it uh, was the first moment for me when uh, exploring kind of the inner landscape um, became a part of my life in a really intentional way. And that's really how I understand kind of like contemplation and the practices I've been orbiting around have been tools to help me understand that inner landscape. Thank you for that. I really appreciate sharing that. Uh, sort of through woundedness, right, through pain and suffering, and that that understanding of the difference between loneliness and solitude. And I think that contemplative path, that sort of ability to be connected to the sacred and everything, it does open up that door to something that's beyond loneliness and can be something grounding in solitude and can hold our pain uh, in, a, in a larger way. Alexis, what about you? So I, I appreciated the the way that you framed it also, Teresa, like um, in terms of not necessarily needing to look at practices, the way that that's been sort of narrowed. Because I think my first experiences of contemplation were experiences that happened to me that I wasn't necessarily trying to to conjure. And and the earliest that I can remember is um, going to, to the DR, to the Dominican Republic, to visit my grandmother as a child and experiencing the shift in my experience of time 
Um, just because I was growing up in New York, I was born in the DR, but I was growing up in New York and going back to where she lived in the Campo and a little Campo called a little town called Esperanza in the DR. We would frequently experience blackouts all times a day. And the, you know, to, to move from the sort of experience of constant movement, constant things to do, television, radio, to suddenly these long stretches of silence where I would just sit on the porch with my grandmother and do nothing for hours. And my experience of the world was that it was suddenly so rich and vivid. And it was like, I remembered that going, my, my idea was that the island was magic. Right. And that coming back to, to New York was sort of like um, I felt dead. You know, um, I see that as an experience of contemplation, just the basic, just the, the inherent slowing down of time that happens. You, I just was more present to an experience, a vividness of, of lived experience that I couldn't access in New York. And, you know, later in my 20s, I wasn't at all, you know, by this time I was sort of, a, I would probably have characterized myself as like, a, 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 you know, a, what's the word? like a militant atheist, right? Because I was so adamant that religion was actually a force of violence in the world, right? I had had, you know, traumatic experiences with religion. I wasn't brought up, you know, of course, this ties into my story as well. You know, I wasn't brought up in religious spaces, but my family being Dominican was sort of, um, it was in my, my day-to-day world was infused with a sort of cultural Catholicism. And I had I had experienced enough violence, particularly around queerness, to have a sense that there was a disconnect between what was being spoken about, um, the sort of religion of love and the sort of um, the violence that I was seeing folks uh, enacted on people close to me, dear to me, um, you know, uh, family members who were uh, more visibly queer than I was that were being really uh, terrorized by people in their family. And so I was, and then I learning about the role of sort of Christianity and in the history of my people, how we came to be Christian. It was like, okay, this is very clearly not a thing that I want to associate myself. This is a thing that's, um, that's been solely a tool of, of, of colonization and empire. Right. Um, But then speaking of sort of accessing this through um, suffering. My my entryway into into spirituality came in my mid twenties when I had an experience of um, of addiction and you know coming really close to death um, from uh, ways that I had been sort of self medicating and coping with a lot of traumatic experiences that I was dealing with in my life and coming to a place where I had to really choose um, life or death right and when you have to you know I had to choose to live I mean if I was going to live I was going to have to fight for it. And that introduced a whole bunch of new questions in my life around like, why bother? You know, what is this all for? What does it mean? Um, and, and that sort of put me in touch with a sort of a, a thirst and a longing for um, deeper meaning, for ultimate meaning that had always been underneath this sort of, um, this sort of this thing that I was covering over with drugs and alcohol and all kinds of um, things that were doing harm to me, but, but was really a, a quest for this sort of connection and belonging and, and, um, and depth that this sort of quest for spirituality that dawned in my life came. And it came because I was, um, you know, introduced to a sort of healing modality from addiction that saw addiction as a spiritual illness and saw the solution as needing to be a spiritual one. And so it, it sort of introduced this invitation to get in touch with a power greater than us that, that could, you know, that could be a force for healing. And that actually I had the authority and the power to define that for myself. I had never been told that I got to define what that could mean for me. And so it introduced a process of unlearning a lot of violent ideas that I've been taught about God and an invitation to like find a definition for that word that was like healing and powerful and, and um, life-giving in my life. So I started to search in, um, you know, Buddhism and yoga and sort of religions that were spiritual traditions that were accessible to me that were more uh, contemplative oriented because that's sort of the natural orientation of my spirit. Um, and that was all that I could access because it was all that I could see. You know, and so meditation became a really important part of my life. That was probably the first concrete contemplative practice that I was introduced to, um, recognizing that there was a, a that I could experience the divine underneath talking, underneath um, words and concepts. You know, for me, my experience of religion and spirituality had always been a lot of uh, like positive affirmative talking about God and about what it meant to, to be spiritual. And, and so I was introduced to a space where actually the 
experience of the divine is underneath that. The experiences in sort of the negative space in, in the in-between um, was really powerful for me, incredibly healing, and, um, and actually invited me into an experience of, um, of truth um, that I never know I knew I could access. And so um, that was my first, but then, you know, as I've gotten, that, that sort of allowed me to re-enter into Christian spaces. But, you know, I, I sort of gotten introduced. At this point, I'd been a part of Buddhist communities in New York City and really struggled with their overwhelming whiteness and class privilege. And I just felt completely alienated, like I didn't belong there. I knew I didn't. Nobody, I didn't see anybody from my communities there. Um, and so somebody... Um, introduced me somebody posed a question to me of like, what would it look like to search for God in um, the tradition of your mother, right? My mother's Christian and I really wanted to pray with her, you know? And so I decided to take a chance um, on entering back into Christian community and through that got introduced to sort of the um, contemplative teachings of, you know, through uh, Richard Rohr and the sort of center for contemplation and action that sort of had made this sort of European monastic contempl con contemplative lineage in Christianity accessible um, enough that I like that I just ate it up. I mean, I was just like, wow, there is meditation in the Christian tradition, y'all. Like, I did not know that that existed. Um, and, you know, through my time of engaging that, have come to see that even that articulation of contemplation is so limited that there are um, contemplative practices that particularly our people have been doing forever that are not recognized or seen as legitimate in this sort of framework that maybe are not silence, um, that maybe are ecstatic, that maybe are singing, that maybe are dancing, that are drumming, that are, you know, the way that we get wrapped up in music when our people get together and dance and sing, you know, um, that that too is a form of contemplation. Um, and so, you know, it's been, it's, been, it's been a powerful journey for me, particularly, you know, this is what, what excites me about Mystic Soul is the ability to center people of color, contemplation in this way that we can claim space and authority to lift up our traditions um, and, 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 you know, make room for them. Yes, I appreciate that. I appreciate also how your story connects to Sisia's in the sense of this pain and breaking through so that contemplation is an experience uh, came out of breaking through of your own moment of deep pain. And I just, at least for my own life, that was my own experience with finding the contemplative path. Also similar to you, Alexis, through, um, through yoga and Buddhism and meditation in those traditions because they were, their contemplative nature was more visible. It was more uh, overt and accessible and and like you, I didn't, I wasn't really aware that there was a living lineage of contemplation in the Christian tradition that I came from. And similarly, as I found, uh, I found contemplation originally through those other traditions and then through into a uh, Christian contemplative practice, it was both healing for me in, in a moments of deep pain and suffering. So yoga, Buddhist meditation, and then Christian contemplation, I found and accessed through healing from my own uh, sexual trauma and PTSD after sexual trauma in my life. But also then, as I grew in my own practice and my own sort of evolution of myself, my whole self and my own lineages felt incomplete, right? Even in those, in all of those other spaces, that there wasn't the fullness of necessarily what I think the roots and traditions that as people of color we come from, that really uh, a lot of faith or religious or even just spiritual space is not necessarily lifted up in the same way that there's not necessarily overt practices and traditions that are that are considered contemplation side by side with these other traditions in the same way and i am excited about the potential to lift those up and and as you say give them authority and give them power and strength and and authenticate that these two are these things and actually as ancient if not more ancient than than the lineages you know the other lineages in those kind of discussions that all are rooted back to that idea of finding the sacredness and the wholeness of ourselves and and everything beyond ourselves and grounding in something that, that is both all of us and and as you described from the recovery language greater than ourselves right um 
that there's so much potential to explore there. So I want to, in a moment, talk a little bit about the practices that have served you, but I wondered if you had anything more to say in, in terms of, for either of you, this idea of, as we describe contemplation and journey to find it, how you experience in this moment this sort of evolution of POC centering in that contemplative way. I think one other thing I want to say about, you know, what does it mean to be in uh, practicing uh, contemplation um, is that for me, uh, a big shift uh, is to do it in community. You know, that contemplation is so, uh, you know, even though it's about solitude and about your own inner landscape and exploring that, uh, that a lot of times that practices, uh, you know, uh, isolated, you know, you do it by yourself in your room or uh, by yourself at a monastery or something. And I think uh, one of the great gifts of, um, you know, a lot of POC communities is that they're so deeply committed to the communal, you know, they're so deeply committed to family and to one another and to showing up. And, you know, it's like, um, you know, everybody in your neighborhood, you know, like I grew up uh, when I was in Canada, I grew up in this really immigrant uh, heavy neighborhood. And I knew all the Asians, you know, who lived in a three or four uh, block radius from my house, you know, we were just like deeply uh, connected and entwined. And uh, there's something about that, that uh, I think I have, yeah, I have like an inherent longing for and practice around that I, I, I want to bring to my contemplative practices and I want to do them in community and I want them to, I want them to feel kind of like as uh, at home for me uh, in practicing in community as kind of like eating does, you know, I want it to be integrated into my life um, and integrated into kind of like the communal practices of my people as much as uh, sharing food together, you know, sharing moments together. Uh, and uh, that's a big part of it for me. Like how do I bring kind of the commitment to um, the commitment to others and commitment to like living life together into my contemplative practices also. And I guess the other thing I'd like to add is listening to you all to the places, to the ways our story intersect. Uh, Teresa is, I think it's so important for those of us that are doing this work around people of color centered contemplation to just get really clear about the role of white supremacy and anti-blackness in particular in around like what traditions are even accessible to us, right? Because I don't think it's, uh, there's a reason why we who long for a contemplative orientation to spirituality end up only being able to access certain traditions that we see around us, right? Because Christian hegemony has been such that like the particularly, um, you know, the indigenous and particularly black and African diasporic indigenous traditions, earth-based traditions have been so demonized even within our own communities that we don't recognize those as legitimate and not as legitimate paths to mysticism and contemplation, which these are deeply mystical traditions that are all about experience, direct experience of spirit and spirits and the uh, manifestations of spirit in the very, uh, in, in the very, material of creation and beyond and in community. Um, and so it just, it just hearing the sort of both of us share the, our pathways through and around these sort of contemplative practices makes me feel um, it really important to name that because for me, that's also been a part of the healing for me has been reaching back into my ancestral lineage of, you know, um, of my people in the Dominican Republic. Why is it that, you know, I, you know, it's very easy to access the Christian lineage of my people. It's, it's been easier for me to access the sort of indigenous um, practices, uh, at least the, the things that folks have tried to recreate from what's been, from what's left of what hasn't been destroyed by the sort of the colonial era on the island. But um, for me, my journey more recently has taken me into contact with the sort of African indigenous practices uh, that are, that are, uh, that are part of my lineage that has, hugely expanded my experience of contemplation and and i'm really looking forward to uh, continuing to bring that into my the rest of my life and the rest of my work including the activism that i'm a part of yeah i really appreciate honing in both on sissia for you this idea of communal communal identification with contemplation as being key to a poc centering and that Alexis, that I think is so important to name white supremacy as why, not just why do we lift up certain practices and have them more acceptable and accessible, but why do they, why are they 
still the existing framework of what contemplation is and what people are willing to hold as contemplation. I've had many, many conversations over the last few years with people from the sort of dominant um, white contemplative spaces who are actually really uncomfortable with, with practices and lineages that are not Western white contemplation as even utilizing that language. So also even this idea of ownership of language that contemplation has been defined by a small subset of group, uh, a group of people that have had more of the power and dominance uh, within the Western world to actually also still be so strongly holding onto a language of it, you know, that no, you can't, you actually, that's fine. Maybe what you're doing is some kind of mystical lineage, but contemplation is not that. It's only this thing we've defined. So I think it is important not just to speak to the white supremacy and as you say, anti-blackness, but also what does that mean about um, culturally like holding things hostage too, right? <laughs> that the language of a thing that I think is inclusive of all the things we're talking about is still in many ways being held hostage by a small subset of identity. And what is it about that identity that wants to hold that term so close? Um, and what is the danger, you know, that's felt in expanding it to these other things that are inherently talking about the same thing, but coming from POC-centered spaces, coming from alternate ancestral wisdoms. And, and I think that speaks to the whole tradition and lineage, right, of colonization and of the construct of whiteness, this sort of fear of something else being included, right, um, something that we don't fully necessarily understand and wanting to kind of hold this other thing, um, not just centered, but again, this idea of language as being sort of held by one tradition and not let go of, I think is also interesting. So what I'd like to hear from you, both as we begin to transition into talking about contemplative activism, right? So this intersection point at which contemplation moves into spaces, and even, Sissio, what you were talking about, about the communality of things, right? So bringing things into communal space, I think, begins to talk, speak into that. Um, and Alexis, what you're talking about, about ancestral practices, I think also speaks into what's, what's can be in those spaces too. But I also wonder what contemplative practices you hold and what contemplative practices you've been bringing into your movement space. One of the practices that I've hold and that's been really important uh, for my organizing work and also just my work in becoming more and more human is uh, centering prayer, which for me is uh, primarily a practice of letting go. Um, and what I really love about this practice is that, uh, you know, it's a meditation practice, but uh, really the, the moment that it really comes alive is uh in each moment of kind of letting go of the thoughts or emotions or feelings. And it's not even in kind of like maintaining the state of uh, pureness. Uh, and what I've appreciated about uh, that is that, you know, I think organizing work and, uh, you know, community work and life work, it's all messy, you know? And so it's not being contemplative in those spaces isn't about maintaining some kind of like spiritual purity or like, uh, you know, uh, clearness all the time, but it's about the constant work of, you know, what is coming up and how do I, uh, how do I see it for what it is and how do I, you know, pierce it into seeing what's more true and then let go of, uh, uh, let go of all the stuff that um, is getting in the way. That, that's been a practice that's been important for me uh, that I think has just been grounding kind of uh, in the daily uh, grind of, um, the work day to day and also in the daily uh, grind of my ego kind of like scraping against um, what's really, you know, what is actually more true. Yeah, that's been an important practice for me. And uh, a few years ago uh, with a little crew in Boston, we kind of, uh, we organized contemplative action circles uh, around the city that were really committed to, you know, using our contemplative practices um, especially practices around lament and uh, prayer around lament, you know, especially in moments of crisis, uh, you know, crisis around police brutality, uh, crisis around racism across, the, uh, across our city and across the country, you know, like staying in those moments a little bit longer through prayer and using contemplative practice to kind of like open us more fully into that experience rather than turning away from them. And then using kind of that, 
emotional grounded uh, groundedness to lead us into um, to lead us into action to not stay kind of isolated in that moment of sorrow, but you know looking fully on at uh, what was wrong and uh, taking collective action together through some kind of risk. So uh, you know, in this little crew, we would do contemplative practices around lament and then uh, kind of do some deep community building and eating together and then uh, make commitments to one another to do, uh, to do kind of like high risk actions to do not on direct action together, but through groundedness uh, in this, in community and um, kind of in our spiritual work. Thanks, Cecilia. Interestingly, centering prayer has also, you know, um, been a really important part of my personal spiritual practice. Um, spoiler, you know, Sissy and I are going to be sharing, a, 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 you know, a centering prayer uh, guided practice as part of this conversation um, because of its importance to us both personally and in our in our work. And, um, you know, for me, that practice on an individual level has just given me an opportunity to really unlearn a lot of the, the sort of baggage that I've been carrying around my relationship to spirit, my relationship to self, um, who I thought I was, right? Begin to shed some layers of identity that actually have been imposed on me that I didn't need to carry, that I was acting out of in my personal relationships. And so I was bringing all that into my work because this isn't so much... This isn't. This can't be a thing about like what practices are we bringing into our work, separate from our personal spirituality, separate from our you know our our uh, faith communities. These are all intertwined, right? And so for me, doing that, uh, taking up those practices that allowed for me to be more fully myself and more whole, allowed me to show up more powerfully in my work. And so at the church where I serve as pastor, I've been able to create. Um, I've had the ability to create um, you know centering prayer practice groups where folks that are engaged in activism either together in the community. It just so happens that. Um, the community at New Day is, is um, you know, really deeply engaged in work together as a collective. So folks were able to share both their organizing work in the community and space for sort of regenerative and restorative practice. Um, and introducing this was really powerful to the community. Um, that for many folks was a new thing. You know, this is, a, again, sort of a mainline Protestant church in its, in, its, um, in its origin. Contemplative practice, especially in this sort of monastic thread was not really a part of its of people's experience so besides the centering prayer another um another another thing that comes to mind when i think about using contemplative practice um in action is uh some work that i've been really privileged to be a part of here in new york with a group called urban atavex um which is uh, centering the work of Esperanza Martel, who's a Puerto Rican uh, human rights activist, educator, um, healer, uh, just incredible organizer that's been doing work, you know, uh, for the you know over 30 years here in New York, particularly with women of color, particularly with Puerto Rican women, um, looking at the ways in which um, folks that are engaged in uh, transformative social justice work in our communities, looking to challenge white supremacy, uh, patriarchy, homophobia, sexism, um, can be out doing this work and actually be bring, coming home and taking that, taking the very things that we're fighting home with us, right? So the very, the very forces that we're trying to eradicate kind of can get inside of our relationships inside of our communities, even inside of the very muscles and tissues of our bodies. So she's developed um, a, a framework and modality of healing that is grounded in, um, you know, ancestral practices, particularly um, from Puerto Rico and, um, you know, practices that, you know, earth-based spiritual practices that are connecting people not just to the earth to mother earth and you know to uh, kind of like bridging the ways in which we've been fractured from the wholeness of creation but also from ourselves and from each other um and so i got connected with that work through um through knowing esperanza through various sort of uh actions. I've seen her everywhere. She's the kind of person that if you're engaged in movement work in any capacity in New York City, you're seeing her because she's everywhere. You know, she's in her 70s now and she still is out there on the streets. Anytime there's an opportunity to show up and take a stand for our communities, she's out there, particularly now in the wake of sort of the devastation happening in Puerto Rico. Um, but I got connected with her actually in the wake of the Pulse shooting. Um, like I said, she the, the circles that she holds are for the most part 
um, you know, created by women of color for women of color. But every once in a while, there are open circles that are open to um, all genders and are open to the community. And so there was this circle that was called in the wake of the, 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 the shooting at Pulse nightclub. Um, and, you know, I went to that to that circle, not knowing I had heard about the sort of healing circle work that folks have been engaged in. I wasn't really sure what I was getting myself into. And I just remember having this incredible experience right from jump of um, like being invited to experience and feel the depth of grief that I was carrying in my body. I mean, releasing things that felt like they had been um, pent up inside of me, um, not just for my entire life, but for lifetimes. Like it was beyond my life, a worth of grief that I was carrying. And sort of the, 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 the work and, you know, is, is centered around inviting each other in community to, to, to release the, the grief and the suffering and the terror that we hold in our bodies. But then to realize that that pain is not just ours, right? To realize that that pain is a manifestation of these structures of oppression that we're living inside of, um, that they are a part of, that they are uh, a part of us for better or worse, because this is the way that we live with the impact of these systems. This isn't theoretical, right? We are living and breathing the manifestations of these, these uh, forces of these death dealing forces of violence that we're inside of. But that, you know, this is not some sort of like bourgeois one-on-one clinical therapy either, right? That this is that the healing happens in community, that the healing happens when we witness one another releasing and inviting one another. We can hold the space for each other to release that. And so, um, you know, I basically begged Esperanza to let me, to allow me to be a part of these circles because I thought it was so important as, uh, you know, for men and particularly for men, you know, that are committed to, um, standing against patriarchy in our communities because we realize that like you know um we have a responsibility to the women in our community and in our lives to be a stand against this force that we that we benefit from that we are inherently privileged by but that is destroying us as well right so um as a queer man i was very key i was like very clear about the ways that i have been done violence to by the sort of like ideals of what it means to be a man in our society um, but I had also benefited from the patriarchy as well. Right. And so being invited to dig more deeply into the ways in which I embody that. And to me, that is very clearly a practice of contemplation, right? Because it's inviting us beyond the day-to-day experience of just being a person, being a person committed to justice, showing up in my work, showing up in my relationships to like, what is deeper underneath the surface? Um, where do these things come from? How are they reflections of, um, these systems of violence that we are um, that we are committed to destroying, and what does it ask of us um, as people that are committed to healing? Um, you know, to healing ourselves. You know, as we always says, you know, we heal ourselves, we heal our families, we heal the planet. Um, you know, we heal our communities. It's all interconnected. Um, and so that that you know, we have in all the workshops that we do together as Atabex and all the community spaces, whether we're doing sort of like uh, popular education trainings, um, teaching folks Palo Freire methodology to support their organizing. We always make space. If a moment happens where somebody's triggered, a situation happens because we know we're, we're, we're holding space inside of our communities. We're dealing with police every moment. People can, um, if a moment happens where, you know, we can, the, the sort of healing circle element, like a circle can be activated at any moment. It's not something that's separate. It's not seen as a distraction to the work. It is something that we're prepared to activate at any moment so that we are infusing our, um, you know, our work for justice with this healing element, this contemplative element. I appreciate that. And I think for me, that brings together components that, that seem so intertwined, right? For the spiritual, you know, the depth of spirituality, that we're talking about as contemplation, but again, is this rooted also in ancestral wisdom as well as the practice of something like centering prayer that both uh, Sissy, you and Alexis articulated, but this way that uh, also this ancestral wisdom of contemplation. And even I really appreciate you talking about the, the embodiment of it, right? Because I think also one of the limitations, at least of contemporary Western contemplation is much of it, particularly in the Christian tradition, but I think we can say um, in general, the sort of silent seated meditation can sometimes lose connection to the embodiment piece and can lose connection to 
the inherent healing of that embodiment. And I think what you're describing in this sort of other vision of contemplation as it can look is deeply embodied, is deeply centered on hurt, and is is disrupting that wounding. And even in space, I think also this connects then back to activism and this idea of contemplative activism is that this work, this healing work, this contemplative practice work isn't a distraction, right, from movement work, but rather it's actually a way to to embed something that can create even healthier communities in movements that can create even healthier community dynamics. And so I'm wondering, thinking about that, how you've seen these integrations show up uh, specifically in spaces and places in your work. So as we're, as we're talking about this contemplative activism, which I think is still in, in a sense um, kind of like the language of healing justice being explored and experienced in various different ways for people, depending on what their context is. How do you see uh, in your communities and maybe beyond this contemplative activism being engaged by people in your community beyond sort of what we've talked about already, but what, how is this contemplative activism being engaged in action? One of the things that was really powerful for us um, when we were doing uh, contemplative action work, uh, yeah, was kind of returning to this idea of lament in our communities. Uh, one of the things that um, was really powerful for me as I was, you know, coming into contemplation and action was the readings of Walter Brueggemann, um, who uh, talks about, you know, prophetic imagination and lament as a critical piece of that prophetic imagination, that through lament, uh, you know, that's how we uh, know most viscerally that things are not okay in the world, you know, that uh, you first have to engage with, um, stay in those moments uh, of trauma and of pain and stay in those moments that are broken rather than turning away from them. Um, and that, you know, what does it take to really do that, to really stay in those places it, uh, is it takes like an incredible amount of care, uh, an incredible amount of intention, an incredible amount of like uh, ability to hold that pain and work through it through, um, you know, not immediately even to go towards healing, but knowing that, um, uh, just the announcement, you know, that there is, uh, that there's something to be lamented, you know, something to grieve, uh, that that's a powerful place, uh, from which, uh, collective action can take hold. You know, I think in organizing a lot of what I see is, uh, you know, uh, people kind of going to like short-term fixes, you know, a lot of instrumental wins that are really powerful for communities that are really powerful to like claim small victories in, uh, movement work, but uh, what I really found um, just transformative in staying in moments of lament is that the transformation that we really need in the world uh, is, in fact, much deeper than what we can access if we only kind of stay on the surface. And so, um, for me, uh, lament was critically connected uh, to kind of deepening my own organizing work, my own organizing thinking uh, beyond kind of what, what we can just kind of achieve in the short term and uh, uh, instrumental kind of wins, uh, thinking towards, you know, like what, what are the conditions that need to totally transform, you know, and this has really led me to a lot of my work now, um, you know, working with social movements that have the potential to transform political landscapes and have the potential to like um, shift the entire terrain uh, of what's possible uh, because what we, what our communities really need is much deeper. And once we can really connect to the, um, stay in that, stay in what's really needed through lament, uh, we can access kind of the possibility also and believe in it and uh, have faith in it in community. So that's been a really important part of my work that uh, I think my spiritual practices have helped me to open into. Thank you, Cecilia. And I hear what, some of what you're saying in that also is this contemplative posture as being able to open in a way that you can hold more, right? And you can sit in something longer. And even thinking about that going all the way back to um, Alexis, your story about being able to sit in the Dominican Republic, you know, on a porch and slow down, thinking about the world that we live in and even the kind of pace, as you were sort of describing, Cecilia, of what movements need to be running at, right, to 
get something done. It doesn't leave a lot of space to pause, to breathe, to, and then, and then in not having that sort of cultivated individual and collective practice in being able to hold space and pause and slow down on long enough to experience something, then you just keep sort of running over pain, right? You keep running over suffering to get to the next thing, but it doesn't diminish the pain and suffering. If anything, it just continues to accumulate it under this surface that you described. Um, So I think that's a really uh, important sort of distinction that, that, the sort of contemplative way of being, this ability to slow down and hold space, both for what's sacred, but also just what is in the world of what everything is, um, can allow movements to actually create those moments for practices like you described, Alexis, where a healing circle in your organizing and in your space actually can say, you know, this is not a distraction from the work, but we need to pause now to do this so that we can deepen in ourselves, deepen in our community so that we can deepen in the work. And so I think it is a, it is a very different posture uh, of being and of, and in that you can hold more, right? And so you can hold the pain and you can hold the grief long enough to work through it together, or at least to collectively be aware and attuned to it together in a way that I does I do think has the potential to sort of shift and change spaces. Alexis, do you have any thoughts on that or or just kind of this idea of how the contemplative can have you know hold space and can have value and can have meaning for movements that maybe are in some way or aren't yet integrating this kind of way of being into how they're organizing. For sure. I think the thing that comes to me when I think of this contemplative activism frame is that because it's twofold and this, this kind of feels like it's a bit in contradiction, but it's a little bit of a paradox, right? On the one hand, I think a lot of this is emergent, right? So a lot of this, a lot of what I am, what I've been able to see or I'm pointing at in, in, in the conversations that we've had are sort of glimpses of what it means to embody contemplative activism, right? I don't necessarily, I don't know that I've seen many sort of complete expressions of this vision of the, you know, the coming together of these two, of these two things. But at the same time, I think there are so many practices that folks are already engaged in that already, that are contemplative activism. Um, you know, in, in the fullest sense of the word, we just don't, we aren't trained to think about them as such, or we don't have that language. Um, and so we don't, we may not even be doing them intentionally or give them the value that they deserve. Um, I, my organizing experience has been, um, pretty local here in the Bronx, particularly through, um, the Northwest Bronx Community and Clergy Coalition. So it's an organization that is, you know, at its core, bringing together community groups, faith groups, um, from all different sort of areas and communities that are a part of this, like, very diverse and eclectic community that's in the Northwest Bronx, um, doing, um, you know, campaigns together and, and fighting to sort of shift power dynamics and, and win, um, you know, concrete victories for our communities. And so because this is like a faith, our organization has a clear faith component, there are clearer moments of folks trying to do embed spirituality in the work, right? Because we often have faith leaders and faith communities that are core leaders of our campaigns. And so I'm thinking back to um, one of the campaigns that I've been able to work on in my time, uh, or, you know, when I, I haven't been a staff organizer at the organization for the past couple of years, but in the time that I was, was the, um, the fight for the redevelopment of the Kingsbridge Armory, um, which is this huge building on um, here in the North Bronx, which is actually the largest armory in the country that has been sitting vacant for the better part of the last 40 years. Um, And, you know, at a certain point, the building started to basically crumble on itself, right? And and the city was only using it intermittently for like homeless shelters. Um, and basically, it was just, you know, sitting vacant. It's, it's the size of an entire city block. Um, and so at one point, when the, the building was collapsing on itself, community members started to say, you know, the city has to put money into this building because we can't have it falling on our kids. That was like the, the, the first impetus for organizing around this building was just like, put in enough money so that this building doesn't collapse on itself, right? But 
And so there was a fight. There was millions of dollars put into the fixing of the roof of the building. But as that sort of started getting off the ground, there were young people in the community that started to say, you know what? Like if they're going to put money into this building, there should be this, something should go in here that actually benefits our community. Right. And they started to dream together about like schools or recreation centers, something that could go in there. Um, and, you know, it was a 17 year fight. There was 17 years of organizing to try to get the city to actually develop this building. Um, and at one point um, under Mayor Mike Bloomberg, it was set to become after all of this resistance from the city to even consider developing the building. Um, B- Mike Bloomberg had decided that it was going to be a, basically a poverty wage mall. Right. There was very little uh, community input in what could go into this building. And so there was this proposal to create this poverty wage mall, which was not only going to bring like, you know, minimum wage part time jobs to the community, but it's going to decimate the local economy of the sort of the area that it sat in. And so the organizing move to the strategy moved to actually stopping this development. And so it was inside of this. And I, this was before my time, but it's such a clear, it's become sort of like coalition lore at this point of sort of like what happened in the fight to shut down this development, which was the clergy leaders and the faith communities in the neighborhood. There were all these churches that are a part of the coalition took up like having these massive prayer gatherings outside the armory where young people would literally wrap the armory in like caution tape that said our armory on it right and wrap it around this entire block you know this this building that was the size of a city block would become encircled in this um yellow tape that would claim this this building as the property of the community and there would be these massive prayer gatherings where there would be young people and old women in the Neledonias from the neighborhood and you know clergy praying over it and you could hear stories of people actually saying they could feel the power of spirit moving you know the people would talk about these winds that would blow through the through Kingsbridge Road you know and you see these images of people with their candles and their arms raised sort of praying claiming ownership of this building and you would think you know when you think about like 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 strategy to you know and ultimately what happened out of this was we were able to organize the new york city council to shut down this project no one had ever shut down a bloomberg backed development project ever it was a massive show of community power Right. And it was massively successful. But these prayer gatherings were not, you know, there's a way in which you think that this is kind of like a stunt. Right. These are things that people do to sort of galvanize the community. But actually, this was never seen as like um, a superfluous action. Right. It was it was such a powerful gesture in invoking the community's power to claim ownership over its resources, to say this space that we are inhabiting is ours. Right. You just can't come in here and do whatever you want with this neighborhood. In fact, when the Bronx was burning, we rebuilt these communities. We built these communities up from scratch from the from the years of neglect and disinvestment that the city had had subjected us to. And so now you can't come in and just do whatever you want in this building. Um, And so to me, that is a powerful vision of contemplative activism, right? Folks weren't sitting there having like, now we're going to have our contemplative moment, right? But it was like, these, these, this gesture of the, the entire, you know, what was like hundreds of people, arms raised, praying over this building, invoked a future. It was like pulling a future that people were envisioning into the present, right? It was saying, we don't, maybe we, maybe we don't yet have the power to say we're going to develop this ourselves, but we are going to stake a claim over our community in a way that you tell us we can't do. Um, and ultimately it led to a really powerful success, like a uh, victory for the community. And, you know, um, the, that victory has gotten very complicated now, right? Because ultimately after shutting down that, that development, um, what we ended up going for was a community benefits agreement, right? Where a very powerful community benefits agreement with another developer. But now, you know, we've come to this place where gentrification in the Bronx is such, um, as it is all over the country, that anything that goes into this armory is posing a threat to the folks that live into, in, the, in the community. And so, you know, folks are, you know, fighting to defend the things that we fought for and won in that community benefits agreement, recognizing that, um, you know, there's a danger to that, to that property getting developed now. So, you know, it's like we can't go into any of this with sort of um, overly idealistic or rosy glasses. It's like all of these decisions that we make are we make the best decisions we can in the moment. And then we fight for the for what our communities are due, even within 
situ- uh, uh, circumstances that are less than ideal. So it's yet to be seen what will happen in, in this space and how it will ultimately all pan out. But I look to that mo- those moments of those prayer vigils outside the armory as powerful moments of contemplative activism. Thank you for that. I think that's such a helpful articulation of the sort of holding this space in a way that is, that we can define as contemplative activism. And I really like how you said it wasn't a superfluous action, right? It was something, because a lot of times I think also people think, oh, this meditation thing or this contemplative practice thing as being somehow this sort of lighter on the side thing, right, of activism. But to me, I think that moment that you describe, the potency of it, the power of that space, and then also what was able to be born out of that in terms of, of, what needed to happen, like you said, not in some simple, easy way, but what needed to happen for the moment to get to the next thing was born out of that moment that was deep, powerful activism and community organizing and community presence, but at the same time was also deeply contemplative and the contemplative component of it had its own power in that space and that, that it wasn't, it wasn't some soft thing on the side. It was, it was the movement. It was the activism in that moment. And so I appreciate you lifting up that story I think that's a really um, it's a really great way for us to kind of close out this conversation which to me is just the beginning of a conversation about what these things look like I'm hoping that even just dialoguing about this can extend forward into future conversations future envisionings imaginings and becomings of what this thing called contemplative activism can look like and how it is so deeply grounded in this inherent way of healing and and how we sort of contem- complicate uh, what we think of as contemplation or maybe what others think of as com- contemplation when we talk about POC centering, we talk about ancestral wisdom and how do we open space for, even as you described again, what you're talking about, Alexis, that um, that things are happening in community that are inherently contemplative, that are those pra- those kind of practices that we're struggling to talk about and define, but that maybe aren't being lifted up in that in the fullness of what they are, or centered in the fullness of what they are, but they are organically happening in community. So I appreciate both of you for being part of this conversation, and look forward to future discussions. Thank you. You just heard a conversation between Teresa Pimateas, Cecilia Lee, and Alexis Francisco from the Mystic Soul Project. You can learn more at mysticsoulproject.com and download the corresponding practice with Alexis and Cecilia teaching us how to do centering prayer. It's a phrase I heard for a long time, and the word centering makes sense to me. The word prayer makes sense to me, but I didn't really know what people meant when they officially put those words together. So if you're curious, you can download the corresponding practice, and our practices are always published on Thursdays. So if you don't see it yet, wait till Thursday. I want to send a big extra special shout out to everyone who we met at Allied Media Conference in Detroit two weeks ago and also at Common Bound with New Economy Coalition in St. Louis last weekend. Thank you to those of you who joined us for workshops, our podcast Story Lab, where we recorded your stories about resilience that are going to be made into a future episode, as well as our workshop on economies of care. Uh, in St. Louis. Thank you for the richness that you brought, the ideas, the stories, uh, and the beauty that you brought into those spaces. And if you weren't able to be in those spaces, which is most of us, that's why we make a podcast because not everyone gets to zip all around and and see everyone in person all the time, right? Uh, there's so many things happening in our movements and in our lives and in our bodies. And so that's why we share cool stuff with you here. And two ways that you can kind of peek in on those workshop experiences. One is you can check out our social media, put a lot of stuff on Facebook at Healing Justice Podcast. We put the most, the most on Instagram. You can find us on Instagram at Healing Justice and look at our recent posts and the highlights in our stories to see some stories from Allied Media Conference and Common Bound and sort of be there with us via social media. And the other way that you can feel like you were there with us is to download a copy 
uh, of the zine, the Healing Justice zine that we were giving out at uh, both conferences. It includes the work of Maurice Mitchell Brody, Autumn Brown, Caitlin Metz, and Marsha Lee. And it's a really simple PDF that you can print on a regular piece of printer paper in black and white and color it in. And it has some beautiful words and important words about healing justice. So we would love to email you the PDF of this super cool zine. If you want that, go to healingjustice.org and sign up for our email list. It's right there in the middle of the homepage. It's a like a salmon pink colored button. Sign up for our email list and we'll send you a PDF of that zine and keep in touch with you once every one to two weeks uh, with sending you a gem from the podcast. So my friends, thank you so much for being here. As always, you can contribute to support this project. We're so appreciative when you do. The way to do that is at patreon.com slash healing justice. And right now, as we're winding down this first season, we are asking for folks to become patrons, if you can, at the $8 level. That is allowing us to uh, have the funds to send gifts of appreciation to every guest that has been on the podcast this season so far and every volunteer that has touched it. That is 79 people. This is incredible and amazing how many people have participated to bring you um, this really life-giving information and these practices. And so if you can, please chip in so that we can send uh, a token however small of appreciation to people who have been on the show this season and contributed their labor and their heart to building this community patreon.com slash healing justice the mystic soul series was generously content edited by blake chastain who runs the exvangelical podcast and as always mixed and produced by zach meyer at the coal room thank you so much for being with us and we'll hear you next week